0: Hello, and welcome to what I guess I'm going to tentatively call Theology Gaming Monologues. My name is Zachary Oliver, the owner and proprietor of the Theology Gaming blog. People don't like reading long-form writing on the internet. I think that's pretty common assumption, and I think I could say that with pretty fair confidence. So, I was given the idea to perhaps turn my longer articles into monologues which would basically be me reading it, but it's much better than you having to read through it, depending on who you are. (laughs) This also means that my writing gets you the proper inflection and probably what I would say when I'm saying it. So this makes it a lot easier for most people to kind of get a sense of what I'm saying without losing interpretive context on it. And, of course, if you have any questions, you can always ask me, because I'm on the Theology Gaming University Facebook group. Feel free to join us there. So, the first one I'm going to read is the one based off the list. The list being my list of top 20 games that I think are worth a theological glance. So, the one that we're picking today is The Chronicles of Riddick, Escape from Butcher Bay. So, here we go. First ever quote-unquote, monologue. Too bad you can't see the quote marks. (laughs) Alright. I remember 2005 as a strange year. I had just gotten my second serious PC gaming rig the previous year after a failed experiment with CyberPower Incorporated. One should not, if unfamiliar, try to assemble a personal computer part by part. (laughs) As a result, I somehow ruined my own device through a combination of bad fans, a horrible graphics card, even for 2004, in a power supply that could barely power one room in a house. The wattage on that thing was terrible. And made Warhammer 40K Dawn of War unplayable to the point of black blue screen of death. It was not very good. A bunch of palpable ignorance from a high school student isn't uncommon, but still. The whole debacle, so obviously horrific, fixed itself when my accountant father took the PC for himself. Heck, it could ba- do basic Windows XP functions, so it worked on that level. Success. In the meantime, I picked up one of the earliest Dell XPS systems, a sturdy monster of a system that made the sound of a fleet of 747s. It commanded every game of that year and nearly every year hence, until I finally upgraded to a new PC. That PC, the XPS, still runs to this day with nary a cleaning or a problem, and ran World of Warcraft up until recent times at full frames per second. In fact, as an addition to this original monologue... I've actually taken that computer, put in a new graphics card, and my brother can still run World of Warcraft on a nine-year-old PC. That's mostly because it has a single-core Pentium 4 Extreme Edition, which is at 3.73 gigahertz, and possibly overclocked to four. I'm not quite sure about that, but it can most certainly run it. Enough about me and various computers, though. Why did I want to venture into PC gaming around 2004 and five? Well, most people would say Half-Life 2. And they'd look at me quizzically when I say, not really. I held no love nor nostalgia nor need to see the Half-Life saga finished in its entirety. Honestly, I first got into PC gaming to play Unreal. <laughs> because Unreal involved shooting aliens in beautiful locales in the vein and style of Doom. I did not feel any disappointments giving Half-Life at all. And to this day, I haven't played the original, though I seem to own it multiple times. I imagine even Half-Life Source hasn't aged all that well, and though there's plenty of ways to play it upgraded into visual splendor, such as the Black Mesa mod, I'm just not that interested, and I'm sure the 1998 game design probably isn't that helpful either. Of course, I did not give up the change to actually play it when it came with my brand new spanking new Dell XPS for free, so I indulged the opportunity. Much as it revolutionized gaming storytelling, something felt missing. Here, I felt it was a rote first-person shooter with a gravity gun, and, get this, physics puzzles. Woo, excitement. Of course, the game paces its game tropes well and throws a many varied obstacles, but driving, or boating, across barren desert wastelands, prisons, and communist modeled housing didn't light a fire into me. If any game represents Valve for me, it's Portal, where they streamline the actual game portion into the plot machinations. One other gigantic first-person shooter came with its own series of expectations, Doom 3. We all thought Doom 3 would play much like its predecessors, except in the glorious light of a newer engine and better technology developed by id, or just John Carmack, depending on who you ask. Was it me, or was 2004 the year when FPS games started to look absolutely amazing? Even Far Cry came out this year, starting Crytek on a path to graphical splendor, if not well-designed enemy AI. Honestly, the first-person shooter genre boomed right around here and then never looked back. However, one strange little title stood out for me in all this mess, and if you hadn't guessed its name by now, it's in the title of this very article. I had a vague familiarity with the Riddick series from watching Pitch Black, a competent, if not particularly original, science fiction film with a neat premise and a strange anti-hero character. Richard B. Riddick in the Riddick universe is the ultimate quote-unquote badass character. If one word describes him, we could call the character a predator. He hunts, he tracks, and he kills without remorse or moral qualms. Riddick should not be anything more than a continual convict and a murderer, yet he frequently performs altruist actions for people he barely knows. Riddick's supernatural abilities for violence come from his race, as a Furian, a long-forgotten civilization of warriors who came to near extinction through military campaigns. As for the goggles, he either received shine the ability to see in the dark but not the light, through a black market operation, or as the result of a prophecy regarding Riddick himself, Retconning is a foolish, foolish thing. Honestly, the story is a little strange and confusing. If anything, we should say one thing. This does not sound, at first glance, like grey material for a video game. We might also say that nearly every licensed game that came before it, especially based on film properties, did not live up to any expectation, nor foster any expectation. Gamers hated licensed products because they were designed to sell, not so that gamers would enjoy themselves. So we, as a collective, dismissed them after continual disappointment. Vin Diesel, though, thought otherwise. Diesel, a longtime Dungeons & Dragons player as well as a video gamer himself, saw potential in the medium. He thought, quite presciently, that the future of media and marketing would come from a cross-platform approach and also allow him to further the Riddick mythos, if you want to call it that, with David Twohy, the director of the films. So it was that the prequel to the sequel, (laughs) Escape from Butcher Bay, came into being. Inspired by prison escape films and a variety of game genres mixed into a wonderful hodgepodge, it's truly one of my favorite game experiences of all time, precisely due to that strange melting pot. Always simmering with new ideas, it frequently launches you into unfamiliar territory for a first-person shooter with an incredibly focused, alternately non-linear, and always-challenging single-player campaign that's also thematically consistent throughout. Honestly, I found myself as surprised as you to sing the phrases of Escape from Butcher Bay in contrast to another decade's worth of first-person shooting excellence. Plenty of games came out after this one, yet it sticks in my mind as the greatest single-player FPS that I've played. What blasphemy, you say? There's no shame for me. My laurels rest on a rather intriguing game that hasn't been tops since in its variety. Given that it takes place in a prison, it's a rather dark game, but that's par for the course. The setting shouldn't dissuade anyone from trying it out, though. The quality of the game seemed inevitable from the first screen to the last. Like Peter being delivered from imprisonment by the craziest of miracles in Acts 12, who could be anything less than astonished to find a person in prison knocking at your door? And here is X twelve. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she did and not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, It's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, Report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. That's from the New American Standard Bible. That wasn't a sure thing, though, in this case or in the case of a movie-based video game. You'll note they doubted, even though they believed in the same God and believed the same things about him. We are inclined to doubt from the outset, and what else could make you doubt the physical than the physically impossible? At least in American culture, post-science. In that sense, it's remarkable that such a diverse and wonderful game could even exist, but here we are. Diesel's newly established, at the time, Tigon Studios established the aid of Swedish developer Starbreeze Studios, little known for anything but obscure action RPG enclave. Did you play it? I certainly didn't, though I happened to own it for some reason. Unsurprisingly, Starbreeze wanted to turn Escape from Butcher Bay into a first-person role-playing game with you in the role of Riddick. Vestiges of that unnecessary complexity show through the so-called quote-unquote adventure segments, pruned to a wonderful level of interactivity without bloat. In the game, which throws you into a thematically consistent tutorial level before throwing you out into the world, the first real segment consists of talking to prisoners— What a surprise. What a strange idea for a so-called first-person shooter. Mostly you'll learn to know your new inmate companions, the dynamics and power structures of the place, who wants you dead, and obviously how to escape. (laughs) Hence the title of the game. It's strange to find yourself wandering around the prison as if it's a pleasant social call. The atmosphere removes this feeling with the constant presence of guards and camera turrets, which will attack you at the slightest intim- intimation towards violence or odd behavior. Jumping down, for example, or maybe bludging a guard, or maybe just about punching people. <laughs> Much of these segments, of which there are two, revolve around picking up quests yes, quests in a first person shooter along with collectibles in the form of cigarettes. Quests mostly come down to things you were going to do anyway, appropriate for prison life. of one person or another, obtain drugs for some wonderful patron, and related subtasks. You might think this sounds horribly boring, but it works from both a narrative and mechanical standpoint. What do you think prisoners do all day anyway? Riddick's obviously craftier than many of the other inmates, but he needs to prove himself to each group if he wants to get the help he needs to escape. Over time, you'll find that your actions intimidate and earn the respect of everyone in close proximity. Frequently, Riddick often employs the illusion of non-linearity. The whole prison system sounds like the vestige of a role-playing game, akin to Bioware's work, and functions in much the same way. You do what quests you want, when you want. However, Escape from Butcher Bay also presents no doubts to the player that it is, through and through, an action game. The game constantly bounces you from one genre to the next. The prison sequences may take a long while, but soon enough escape from Butcher Bay will thrust you into close-range combat situation, or the need to remain stealthy, or even an arena-based fistfight. You never know what will happen and which quests will disappear and or totally change within the span of a few minutes. It gives you the idea of freedom, which makes your actions feel all the more powerful. Almost all of your actions change the environment in some way, from your frequent escape attempts, soldiers talk about you if you listen in, to the whole dynamic of relationships. Of course, earning respect from criminals comes less from Riddick's intellect, he talks little, and mostly via violent means. As Riddick's a violent man, Starbreeze's vision contains much of that. However, the traditional shooting segments don't form the core of the experience. I can only count about an hour where you hold lethal weaponry like assault rifles and shotguns, Relatives to the rest of the game's reluctance to provide you with any suitable traditional first-person shooter weaponry. Shivs and silence become your main weapons. The close-range fist fights, or shivs, or screwdrivers, or brass knuckles, work surprisingly like punch-out in the first person. Using a combination of the forward, left, right, and back keys, or on your analog stick, depending, will do different sorts of attacks. Back and attack makes Riddick do an uppercut, for example and these can be strung together to form simplistic combos. Apparently, they wanted to implement a separate fight mechanic or mode, but this interrupted with the flow of the game too much in restricted movement, breaking immersion. The first-person perspective brings home the impact of punches as gore and blood fly out and bodies fall. I imagine that's intentional. The same goes with ammo readouts on the gun, which don't interfere with the heads on display in any way. You are, in fact, Riddick, and the game wishes for you to feel the consequences of being Riddick. You act as he acts, walks as he walks, and do the things he does. The most notable thing you learn Riddick's ways come from the stealth sequences. Some of the best designed such mechanics that I've seen. Press the crouch button to go into stealth mode. Like any stealth game, the shadows remain your friend. Helpfully, the game indicates whether you can be seen by changing the screen's color to a bluish hue for hidden or an orange view for being in plain sight. Guards for the most part react appropriately. If they see your shadow, even when hidden, they'll attack. If you walk up without being in stealth mode, they'll see you and attack. If you kill a guard loudly or fail to drag his body into the shadows, they will go on alert looking for you. When you don't have weapons or can't due to the story contrivance of DNA encoded weapons or some kind of other contrivance, traditional to game design, (laughs) you'll want to take care not to reveal yourself. You can kill guards, but you can also bypass a great deal of them. In most situations, you'll find the level design gives you the option to do either-or. If you're the running gun type, like myself, options to do just that will present themselves. Shotguns aren't affected by DNA codes, so that works. If you rather strike from the shadows, which is also something I like to do, up above or near them, then that's also a possibility. For me, I take the hybrid approach. Kill what I can and stealth kill everything, and I mean everything, until the area is clear. Perhaps this isn't efficient, but I'd do it anyway. Heavy mech guards, of course, present a problem to an unarmed prisoner, but it's possible to sneak right by heavy monstrosities, if necessary. Furthermore, Starbreeze Studios augments all these elements through their wondrous graphical design, realistic for the time and still great today, especially the remake, although I don't like that one quite as much. The visuals and music lend a sense of foreboding and grime to everything in this maximum security prison placed on a hostile planet. A visit to the officers' quarters shows that daily life of the guards isn't much better than the prisoners they oversee. People continue in their daily lives, have conversations, and generally do normal, human things. The music also changes dynamically based on the tension of any particular situation, really throwing you into the zone. The best part, of course, is that Escape from Butcher Bay flows from one genre type to the next without so much as a blink. Surprisingly, it's not just good at these diverse elements, it's fantastic. Each one controls perfectly and works great. Even the shooting works well. Riddick isn't the best shot, and much of these segments take place in narrow corridors, meaning that strafing and shooting will make you inaccurate. There's a risk or reward to avoiding bullets and aiming accurately, though, as well as taking advantage of environmental hazards. Hint, shoot fans in the air. This will work. The stealth controls work great, and I never felt I couldn't tell when I could or could not be seen. Or snap some necks. Even the fist fights work perfectly and require knowing when to use defense or not. Some segments force you into complete darkness without the ability to see, and the notable eyeshine ability, see in the dark, adds yet another layer to prevent damage. They even throw this darkness segment right before the eye shine unlocks to show you how useful this ability becomes in time. Make no buts about it, escape from Butcher Bay isn't easy. Guns hurt like guns should hurt, and failing to avoid damage will lead to quick deaths. You need to master a variety of tools and techniques, which the developers will frequently limit and or provide, and each level will force the player out of their comfort zone multiple times. Riddick's resourcefulness adds his natural instincts, and so you show once you're done with the game. The end remains particularly satisfying as it turns into a constant shootout with a giant mech in your hands. (laughs) A super powerful one at that. Still, even with its realism, it sacrifices nothing for the purposes of fun. That's what makes that segment work, along with a host of others. It convinces you that you're escaping a prison. You buy into the illusion of control, and let the level design, rules, and obstacles take care of the rest. You barely take a no- moment to notice the impeccable structure of the whole game, which tricks you into its ways and means without a notice from the player. According to Starbreeze, the player should feel that they're in control, an active participant in events. This explains the relative dearth of cutscenes in the game, as they wanted to keep you active, even when initiating conversations. They did not fail in this objective. If there's ever been a more effective brand of roleplaying, I haven't seen it. The sum total of the experience turns you into Riddick, and it's exciting and engaging all the way until the end. If you've ever wanted to play the life of a dastardly criminal in a high-tech science fiction prison, Escape from Butcher Bay has it covered. Of course, it does contain a boatload of injectable content for any Christian worth his or her salt, as well. 1 Corinthians 6 makes that obvious enough. "...or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God." Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Riddick seems to go against everything we hold dear, if Paul is to say anything. Why expose ourselves to such an experience? Video games change the dynamics on how we consume media. Strangely enough, we do not just receive stories and perform actions when playing games. As the visuals on screen turn from something less abstract, say away from the depictions of walking mushrooms and evil plants, we increasingly find ourselves in a tight spot. The violence escalates from jumping on Goomba's heads to murdering actual digital people. Riddick snacks some necks and shoots some people, even getting creative with bats, shivs, and screwdrivers. Sex emerges, having not even existed beforehand. Heck, the threat of it on the prison walls everywhere is enough. There's a variety of responses to these new developments in gaming, even in 2004, and many of these revolve around how we view our interactions with video games in the first place. I could give just a backhanded response a call a prequel, which it is, and it does explain Riddick's penchant for violent creativity, not even seen as effectively in the films, but I imagine you suspect a more substantive answer than that. Our responses to media generally revolve around the philosophical concept of agency, That is, whether in real life or in a video game, we as agents are capable of performing actions in the world, virtual or otherwise. This does not necessarily mean that such actions contain a moral dimension of any sort. Just that agents, however you define it as a human mind, a soul, etc., can perform actions. Of course, moral content remains what people want to know about when it comes to these sorts of issues, especially in video games, and specifying moral agency removes the confusion from the discussion. Does the violence I enable on-screen constitute the use of my agency to promote such actions? Am I morally culpable for this, or did I lose part of the equation? Do video game actions fit within traditional definitions of right or wrong, or do I merely manipulate pixels on a computer screen? Let us discuss a few theories of moral culpability to hopefully set us aright. We could take a deterministic view, deterministic view, in that accidental and incidental actions lead to other actions, and so on. The vast chain of cause and effect makes us sit on a couch and kill a bunch of dudes in a video game. In this view, there's obviously no moral culpability for your actions at a game or elsewhere, as what you do demonstrates your lack of free will. We do not often think in terms of determinism, or, for a more Christian turn of phrase, predestination, but it provides no definite answers to the question of moral agency in video games, because there's not much of a question to be had. As well, it doesn't provide much of an answer for most human beings. If it's true, everything that will happen will happen, and thinking about this issue in the first place makes no sense. Christians generally do not accept this view, although predestination can cause this as a logical conclusion, if not a theological one. Immanuel Kant's theory of the real self versus the noumenal self pushes back against determinism. Although our real self may not be able to make a decision of free agency, our noumenal self, the self we know before experience or a priori in fancy philosoph speak, may express different leanings. Determinism takes a rather simplistic view in that way, leading us to a strain of inevitability. Also, it makes laws against particular actions seem rather unfair. Kant, on the other hand, says that regardless of our public actions, our noumenal self may reflect different inclinations. So let's imagine playing a game filled with morally reprehensible characters. I imagine many people cannot peg at just why that remains so off-putting. If everything merely comes down to it, quote unquote, being a game, then why do I feel as if I am violating my particular moral code? Your real self manipulates the game for the purposes of fun, achievement, or pleasure, yet certain instances in the game force your numinal self out of its comfort zone. It secretly condemns the action precisely due to the realism of said action. The numinal self isn't a part of nature, and this remains uncaused, thus being unaffected by a deterministic universe. There's a different difference between doing torture in Grand Theft Auto V, let's say, and having said torture perpetrated by AI players and appearing off-screen. Final Fantasy VI, go back and play it if you don't believe me. You, your numinal self makes the judgment based on what occurs on screen. You also have the voluntary free agency of whether or not to play. Kant needs to perform a bit of rhetorical jousting, precisely because human ideas do not fit neatly into the structure of human society. If, for example, all our musings about justice and morality merely derive from our circumstances and environment, that's a rather damning charge against the fundamental frameworks on which we rely. How do you punish someone for actions they could not avoid? How do you prosecute anything when there's no motive to prove other than the surrounding area and or influences? A religious religious person sidesteps the problem by placing moral authority upon God. In that case, the noumenal self of the soul remains culpable for actions it can know and perform apart from outside influence. This fits very much into the idea of intention by which the Bible seems to base its moral code. The Old Testament says actually doing an action constitutes a moral transgression. Jesus, affirming the authority of that which came before, takes it one step further by stating the mere thought of such an action produces a moral transgression. Matthew 5 makes no qualms or real deviations from this interpretation, which remains rather crystal clear. Jesus also mentions this in the context of sexuality further on in that verse, and so we find ourselves covering both ends of the proverbial objectionable content and video games issue. Intention counts for much. To cite a first personal example, I feel no moral qualms chopping dudes up in video games. The last two words have often been enough hand-waving to justify said actions, as I've never viewed any actions taken in digital world in a moral light. I see them as physical manipulations on a controller, in acceptance of the rules in the game which would exist, if not as exciting, whether or not violence is depicted on screen. In more social games like MMORPGs, the way you treat people online blurs this line between fiction and reality, but one can easily make the judgement required here. I treat people like I would want to be treated, even if we're dealing with fake gear, fake bosses, and fake things we can easily distinguish from reality. Everyone's concerned about fake things, surely, but real people with real feelings, wants, and needs exist behind the computer screen. So it's less a matter of confused perception, and more that people cannot discern the functional difference between a real person and a fake video game world. In a way, I suppose I accept the idea of the Magic Circle. First coined by historian Johann Hunzinga, and helpfully noted by Theology Gaming's friends at Gospel and Gaming, like Thomas Henschel, it states that there is an invisible circle or membrane surrounding our actions in play versus out of play. Hence, we call it the Magic Circle, which we enter when we're playing games and accept their rules. Our complicity in quote-unquote moral actions comes down to our acceptance of the rules. To quote Hunzinga himself, All play moves and has its being within a playground marked off beforehand either materially or ideally, deliberately or as a matter of course. Just as there is no formal difference between play and ritual, so the consecrated spot cannot be formally distinguished from the playground. The arena, the card table, the magic circle, the temple, the stage, the screen, the tennis court, the court of justice, etc. are all in its form and function playgrounds. I.e. forbidden spots, isolated, hedged round, hallowed, within which special rules ob- obtain all our temporary worlds within the ordinary world, dedicated to the performance of an act apart. That does not preclude the human agent, of course, but understanding the state of affairs makes our determinations much easier. We do this all the time in whatever game we play. Whether or not we disagree with the ideology on display, we agree with its rules and systems for the purposes of play. Some developers take advantage of this in storytelling. See, anything from Suda51 or Grasshopper Manufacturer that comes out in the United States, pretty much. But rarely do they attempt to address and integrate both. When they do, it sets our alarm bells off due to the association between the player and his in-game avatar whether or not they're really doing anything. Now, can a video game convince the player through immersion that they're the moral agent in question? Absolutely they can. Of course, as we all know, video games are not just magical pieces of digital entertainment emerging out of the ether. They come from a long line of similar entertainment enterprises which, similarly, sought to immerse their audience. Reading a good novel, for example, provokes the same effect. We see the protagonist whom we grow to admire fail in their task due to stupidity or even commit heinous actions we find horrific. Film often presents us with these shocking moments in a way that leaves far less to the imagination, and video games more so than that. The problem, then, is less bad people doing bad things, it's more a good person defined by us playing a video game forced to do bad things. We feel a bizarre kinship with the person we play, whether it's cold-hearted killer Riddick or simply ourselves made through a -a create-a-character tool. Some games allow us free reign to do what we will and what reflects our character, and others force us down a particular path filled with nasty things. Neither of these approaches is wrong, but we place entirely too much stock in the action of a character in a predetermined story just through our personal involvement. So then, how do we wrangle with Riddick in all this? Note, Pitch Black is an R-rated film, and as such, language fitting to that format will crop up periodically in this section of the article for quotation purposes. Also, spoilers for everything, more than likely, so fair warning. They say most of your brain shuts down and cryosleep. All but the primitive side. The animal side. No wonder I'm still awake. Riddick's story does not start with Butcher Bay. No, Richard B. Riddick comes out of a harrowing massacre. As a Furian, his homeworld was destroyed by a race of fundamentalist fanatics known as the Necromongers. It's kind of a dumb name, I know. Serve and live to see the mystical Underverse, which welcomes living beings unlike the harsh world in which people live. Resist or reject the Necromonger ways, and find your soul sent to somewhere less than pleasant. The Lord Marshal, ruler and commander of the Necromongers, sees in a vision that he will meet his end at the hands of a Furian child, and so do the Necromongers come to Furia. To call it a massacre puts it lightly. Genocide seems a better fit. They killed everyone. Men women, children, and even the unborn. They wrapped the baby's umbilical cord around their necks and choked them to death, just in case. Hey, <laughs> I never said Riddick wasn't a dark universe. Riddick doesn't know this, though. In the original film Pitch Black, like any orphan raised on the streets, so to speak, he merely believes his mother tried to kill him and left him in a trash can to die. With that sort of context for your life, could you not be surprised that he turned out as a mercenary, a criminal, and a murderer? Whatever the actual events that surrounded his birth, he chose to repress or forget them entirely. He knew the universe, and it wasn't a place hospitable to him. He grew up in the penal system and only knows the language of violence, both through words and actions. It also didn't hurt that Furians retain their distinctive predilection for combat in precise outbursts of coercive force. Riddick just prefers knives. And this might sound strange, given the above, but Riddick's not a murderer in the traditional sense. He fits more into the role of a survivalist, simply a pragmatic person who puts his life above all else. If he needs to kill, then he will kill. If he needs to leave someone to die, he will. This task, or that task, remains a means to an end, a reinforcement of his animal nature. He frequently describes himself in these terms, and even refers to other prisoners as meat, as well as displaying a clear kinship with animal predators. Clearly, he's either insane, or there's something else lying below the surface. In Pitch Black, for example, he makes every attempt to manipulate every one of the survivors on the planet. After all, there's no use in picking up baggage. Who would care whether these people live or die, especially the bounty hunter Johns? Riddick's worth a lot of money, so why not kill everyone and leave no witnesses? Riddick surely should do this. However, his prison life teaches him that he must forge a balance between trust and distrust, pitting people against one another to remove his enemies by keeping them close. He waits for the right moment, sets his plans, and then strikes. He treats them as toys and playthings, screwing with their perceptions of things and demonstrating his quick wit in evaluating situations. He even blasphemes their religious beliefs, as in the case of the Muslim imam. Imam offers to pray with Riddick for their continued survival, and Riddick obviously refuses. We pray to the I have already prayed with the others. It is painless. It's pointless because you do not believe in God. Does not mean God does not believe Think in someone you. Someone can spend half their life in Islam voice bit in their mouth and not believe? Think he could start out in some liquor store trash bin with an umbilical cord wrapped around his neck and not believe? Got it all wrong, holy man. I absolutely believe in God. And I absolutely hate the fucker. He is with us, nonetheless. Two of your boys are already dead. How much faith do you have left? For all his deception and deceit, Riddick conceals his emotions in his own scars. He cannot let others see, because no one would give him the time of day. After all, first impressions often work. So why, in the case of a hardened criminal, would you make an exception? If we had to note a single moral concern of his, it would lie in children. He does not want them subjected to the same fate as himself, and does everything in his power to prevent it from happening. Still, when a child idolizes a murderer, as in Jack's case, could he ever hope to avoid them becoming like him? This animal nature frequently causes him to evaluate himself as rather worthless in the grand scheme of Riddick's universe. As an abandoned child and a murderer, there's no particular reason why he should continue to thrive and survive. Yet, as the series shows, he does. Through all the films and all media, Riddick gets to know people, see them die, and then survive anyway. It doesn't matter what he does or how he tries to protect them. They all fail. He tries to sacrifice himself to save others, but literally cannot. The universe of Riddick demands that he become its savior and its hero, yet he refuses this time and time again. He isn't worthy of the task, nor could we hold him as a paragon of virtue. He doesn't inspire, he kills. Evil in Riddick's universe must be defeated by a different kind of evil. Simone Weil somehow holds a similar view in the conflict against evil forces in her essay Human Personality. When harm is done to a man, real evil enters him, not merely pain and suffering, but the actual horror of evil. Just as men have the power of transmitting good to one another, so they have the power to transmit evil. One may transmit evil to a human being by flattering him or giving him comforts and pleasure but most often men transmit evil to other men by doing them harm. Nevertheless, eternal wisdom does not abandon the soul entirely to the mercy of chance and men's caprice. The harm inflicted on a man by a wound from outside sharpens his thirst for the good, and thus there automatically arises the possibility of a cure. If the wound is deep, the thirst is for good in its purest form. The part of his soul which cries, "'Why am I being hurt?' is on the deepest level, and even in the most corrupt of men, it remains from earliest infancy perfectly intact and totally innocent. Egregious acts of supernatural good are the only way to awaken this sense of the good in most corrupt of men, even in a tiny amount. When Jesus tells of the self-sacrifice, both for us and for his own, we're not surprised that this would awaken a sense of the good. Greater love have no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. In Pitch Black, we see Riddick confused and utterly baffled by Fry's insistence that they save Jack and Imam from the creatures. Riddick, in his usual way, wants to leave them behind. The fact that she made it to the ship shows her survival instinct, and in his view, obviously, that she is a superior human being. Yet she insists that this isn't the case. She came to him, the criminal, to save the others. If me interpreting in this right, Riddick has never heard of such notions of self-sacrifice. She, in fact, becomes so dedicated to saving two stragglers that she assaults Riddick in her desperation to save them. Are you? You listen to me! I am the captain of this ship, and I am not leaving anyone on this rock with those fucking things. Leaving it on me! Get that thing off my Shut up! You died. I would die for them. You didn't answer. Yes, I would, Riddick. I would. I would die for them. How interesting. And you might say Riddick merely sees this as a violent challenge, but why else would he bother to go back? He could, again, kill her and leave her to them to their fates but something changes if only to observe this notion of self-sacrifice riddick goes to save them both what happens to fry in return she is killed trying to save riddick take this in line with riddick's low view of himself and his words not for me and you can see how strange this redemption story becomes she does not give up on him a single person doesn't and by saving other people he inspires that same hope in them Later, in Pitch Black's sequel, we see the consequences of saving these two people come to fruition, in both good and, mostly, as per this universe, bad ways. Riddick, previously the lone wolf, now finds himself attached to the people he saved. He can't just let them die and leave Fry's sacrifice in vain. What a strange turnaround. Of course, it's fairly short-lived, given the events in Chronicles of Riddick. But it does say something. Even the worst human beings, and aliens who may as well be humans if they're written that way, can redeem themselves in even the slightest of fashions. He is continually underestimated and judged from the outset by everyone, only to surprise them on a number of levels. That's what makes Riddick so compelling a character, at least to me. Vin Diesel also reflects this in the interviews he's given to multiple sources. I enjoy playing a quintessential anti-hero. When I first read the Riddick character, I felt like I've stumbled on an anti-hero I hadn't seen to the point where there's something therapeutic about playing the character. I know it sounds corny, but I feel like I learn about myself when I play that character. Going to that dark, isolated place produces some kind of vision about myself. He mirrors my own quest for identity, my eternal quest as a child. David Twohy asked me what I thought a Furian was, and depending on what day you asked, I would give him a different answer. An actor places himself into a role, and I think what he said above communicates well through the character. Pitch Black rocketed Vin Diesel to stardom even as a cult hit. The second film did pretty poorly, but Vin Diesel waived as a fee for the cameo in the Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift in order to gain rights back to the character. Then he leveraged his house against the newest film in the series when bond problems forced him to invest part of his personal fortune into the project. Clearly, Riddick remains near and dear to the heart of the actor who plays him. Can the anti-hero become the hero? That's the question, I suppose, when we evaluate the Riddick series. Ultimately, it is a story steeped in a variety of different sources with varying degrees of moral questioning. But all point towards the enigma of this violent, sometimes strangely altruistic, character who seems both familiar and surprising. Butcher Bay fits within the context of a larger story, one that demonstrates his penchant for conflict and the result of his training. We need the rest to see the meaning of this individual part. The same thing works in Biblical Hermeneutics, in the process, looks no different here. So if you hadn't guessed, there's reasons both within and without the game that make Riddick special for me. Whether or not you want to dismiss Vin Diesel as a stupid meathead playing a science fiction meathead and it's alright with me. Cynicism and prejudgment, though, never were for Jesus either. Depth exists everywhere if you look, search, and plumb the depths.